I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So I want to begin first by wishing the Sangha at IBMC a happy new year. I hope that all of you are well and happy. And I also wish the same for the community at IBMC and also for all of us who are gathered today for this service. It seems quite remarkable that all of 2021 has, has passed seemingly both uh, quickly and painfully long at the same time for some of us. And so we find ourselves at the beginning of this new year, 2022. And uh, at the new year, it's so common for many of us to begin making resolutions, promises, and aspirations for the future. And these days, it's it's become a bit of a of a joke, a gag of how quickly all the things that we pick up at the beginning of the year are usually cast aside by probably about the end of January, depending. I think people make jokes about how quickly they're going to give up the thing they decided their whole year was going to be about. You know, people will get that that gym membership to try to lose all the holiday weight, and then come. February, that gym membership card is sandwiched somewhere between the Starbucks gift card and the Yogurtland card you forgot about. And for a long time, I, I was pretty um, skeptical about resolutions my, myself and thought it was a kind of a silly thing to do at the very beginning of the year. Like, you should be really making resolutions all the time. It's kind of like a, an old friend of mine that used to get mildly upset about Thanksgiving as a day. Like, why do I have to choose one day out of the year to be thankful? I should be thankful all the time. And of course, uh, when it comes to resolutions, we, we can have that jaded, maybe cynical sense of humor about what resolutions are and the kind of empty promises they may be. But at the same time, we can see that uh, resolutions are precisely uh, part of the path as, as a Buddhist. One of the factors that's sometimes translated as, as right thought is uh, also translated as, as right resolve because of its ability to affect not only the present but the future. So we have these resolutions that we make all the time. As it turns out, that it's not just something that we do at the beginning of the year, but something that's always happening. We're always resolving to do lots of things. And a lot of those things are sandwiched around uh, craving and clinging. And speaking of sandwiches, I can't believe I'm using this as a segue, but on my birthday, my birthday was on the 26th, uh, I managed to actually watch a commercial, which I usually don't watch. I, I Not that I don't watch enough media. I have plenty of subscriptions, but I don't have cable, which means I'm usually spared from a lot of commercials. But on the day of my birthday, after my wife and I had a lovely day uh, exploring uh, a nearby city and then grabbing some 
some food, some dinner. I had to put gas in the car. And wouldn't you know it, on a day out, away from home, away from the TV, the people at the gas station were thoughtful enough to install the TV right there at the gas pump so that you could zone out and watch some TV and not see how much gas you're putting in your car. And most of the time, I, I know that's what's going to happen, so I end up ignoring the, the commercials playing anyway. But as I was pumping gas into my car, something caught my attention because it was this very nice, calming voice, you know, the one you expect to find when someone's guiding you into a meditation. And so I turned to look and go, oh, well, what are we going to be meditating on? And so I turned to the screen and see uh, some kind of bacon cheeseburger from Carl's Jr. And it's this uh, guided meditation on the, the, me the meaty goodness that can be found at, at Carl's Jr. Breathe the bacon in, breathe the bacon out. And I'm not sure if they're trying to give a guided meditation to the people watching the commercial or the burger, because the burger seems to be kind of moving like it's breathing too. It's very bizarre. And uh, at the end of this short commercial, the screen goes black, and then in, in, in words, bold and white, feed your happy. And I, I was struck by this. And so I, I ended up trying to, to find the, the commercial on, on YouTube to watch it again and see, am I really seeing this? Is this, this went all the way through and has been on TV for a while, and sure enough, the YouTube video I found had been around for uh, a year or so. So some of you might have already seen this commercial a long time ago, and I'm bringing up, bringing up something silly. But it was shocking to me for a few reasons. But at the very beginning, I'll say it's shocking to see, first of all, how mainstream mindfulness has become. And I don't mean Buddhism. Buddhism is pretty mainstream too, but... Mindfulness, TM, 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 that has, has really caught on to the point where even the average commercial you're likely to see anywhere will be uh, poking fun at it a little bit, uh, laughing at it, using it as a kind of joke, but also to sell, to sell something. And that line that they have at the end now in these commercials, feed your happy, it's precisely the thing that... Uh, I think that if, if the Buddha were alive now to see that, he would say, well, that's, that's the problem right there. You, you didn't need a commercial to tell you. And that's true. We've, we've been feeding our happy all along. We've been precisely doing a, exactly that. And we've been resolving all along. And that ties into how we try to find happiness. That's the, that's the way the, all of these things connect. When we talk about the Eightfold Path, we put right or true or high or good in front of it, whatever, whatever qualifier we put in front of it, because a lot of the time, just by virtue of living, we're doing all those things anyway. We have a kind of view, we have a kind of thought, resolve, we have a kind of speech and action and livelihood. There are certain efforts that we've done, ways we've been mindful that aren't always skillful, ways that we've been concentrated that aren't always skillful. So we endeavor to do things skillfully. But in our normal mode of being, we're always doing things to feed our happy. Always doing things, striving in such a way, trying to, to fill something in us, something that might feel, feel empty or, or wanting. And it's not a bad way to, to think about this in terms of, of feeding. 
a lot of teachers will talk about craving and clinging in terms of feeding for very good reasons. If you look at the words in Pali, you have tanha and uh, upadana, I think. Uh, both of those, when you translate them, tanha, for example, translates very well to thirst. And clinging translates end up, ends up translating very well to hunger. So a lot of the times when we're talking about craving and clinging, we're talking about a kind of thirst and hunger that we have in us, not only on the physical level, but in the mental, the emotional level as well, these, these thirsts and, and hungers. And we endeavor to have them filled. We, ha- we endeavor to have them uh, sated in some way. And that's a kind of resolve that we do. That's a kind of resolution we make in our day-to-day lives. All throughout our lives, we have these kind of thoughts or these kind of resolves or resolutions that we make all the time, the way we think. So in in light of that, I wanted to speak on a sutta out of the Anguttara Nikaya. And uh, it might surprise some of you to know that this sutta, it's uh, 4.10 out of the Anguttara Nikaya, is called the uh, Yoga Sutta. And so that's another term that that gets thrown around a lot these days. You might as well put a TM on that one, too. And most people understand yoga to be uh, stretching, you know, preferably while wearing very tight pants and on a very uh, pricey mat, if possible. But yoga is a word that has a lot of history and a lot of meaning in the same way a lot of the terms that we use in Buddhism have history and meaning. And a lot of those have parallel usages in in other traditions because of the shared language with Pali and Sanskrit. And yoga is another example of that, where yoga is one of those terms that has uh, very positive meanings and connotations, but also very negative ones as well. Because yoga essentially means like a kind of, um, uh, can mean union, but it also means a kind of attachment to to be paired with something, to be bound with something. And so we are, in this sense, in this sutta that I'm about to share with you, talking about attachment in that way. In fact, yoga, in terms of it, in terms of its etymological foundation, has a lot to do with what we call like yoke, when we yoke an animal to something. So, and really, what we're talking about is uh, a burden. And this sutta opens up with the Buddha saying, "Monks, there are these four yokes or four burdens." Which four? The yoke of sensuality, the yoke of becoming, the yoke of views, and the yoke of ignorance. And so these are the the four that I want to talk about today because of how they relate to the kind of resolutions, the kind of resolve, the kind of thoughts that we make, how they relate to craving and clinging and so on. So we'll see how it's all bound up in uh, quite a few things, you know, dependent origination or co-arising, but also the Four Noble Truths. So, a hefty topic, but hopefully um, we can talk about it in a way that relates to our lives, in a a way that actually matters, in a way that actually feeds our happiness, that's more than some burger we pick up through the drive-thru. So let's begin with uh, the first one. Let's let's look at uh, the yoke of sensuality. That's the one that I think most of us uh, intuitively understand, you know, the the way that we we consume uh, through all of our senses, the things that we delight in, the the things that we we become passionate about, are often things that we experience through our senses. 
the very things that we think we're going to enjoy. And even if we enjoy, we think they're going to last. And even if not, we think that they'll in some way give us a measure of happiness or peace or relaxation. And then they often don't. And this is precisely the kind of teaching that many of us who have explored Buddhism for any amount of time will have come across. Craving for sensuality and, and how that affects us, how that compounds the issue for us and how we find it ultimately lacking. We find it unsatisfactory. Now, if we move past that, we find something beyond just the simple craving for sensuality. We find the very root of that, or rather the, the way it molds our human experience in that in terms of becoming. So when the Buddha talks about becoming, he means something uh, quite involved. It can seem mysterious and, and complex, but it's very much about the nature of the mind in reference to, to craving and clinging. The Buddha compared all of this to a field. Uh, when we talk about, for example, cultivation of the mind, we think about the way someone plants on a field, the way someone digs up the soil, the way someone plants the seeds. And all of that can be done in a good way, in a skillful way. And that's why we have farmers who are able to do amazing things with their crops, or even someone who just has a, a, a lush garden full of flowers and herbs and whatnot. But there's also a haphazard way that someone can tend their garden, where a lot of weeds grow up and things like that. And so that's precisely how karma ends up working out as this field where all these seeds are being planted. And so this is how we see the relation between craving and clinging and our thoughts and how our thoughts propel us forward. That's the example the Buddha gave us of having a field where in every moment, with every action, with every thought, with every word, with every deed, we're planting seeds in this field. And those seeds, some sprout up pretty much immediately. They really didn't need a whole lot of help. In fact, maybe they had germinated already just a bit. And so the moment they hit soil and there's a little moisture in terms of craving and clinging, they start sprouting. Other ones are a little dustier, a little older, or perhaps need more time, or so there's some, some reason that they take much longer to, to sprout up. Other ones, they seem to never sprout at all. They never break through the soil. They just stay in the soil, dormant, seemingly forever. And so this is the kind of world that we create through craving and clinging. The world we create once we have craving and clinging, when we start identifying with it, start giving thoughts to it, start giving resolves to it, start identifying and really getting entrenched in the story. And it might sound complex, but then the moment you start thinking about it, you realize that we've all done this every single time. We can begin with one of the things I often crave and cling to around this time of year, because it used to be the case that around my birthday, I would go to one of my, my favorite uh, restaurants that has Chicago deep dish pizza. Now the thing is, uh, not everyone likes Chicago deep dish pizza. Not everyone is convinced Chicago deep dish pizza is pizza. I have some dear friends in my life that are convinced, and they will tell me every time, that it's a casserole and not a pizza. I enjoy my pizza-flavored casserole all the same. But when I think about this, this pizza, when it pops into my mind, when the cravings and clingings associated with come up, it's not simply a matter of just, boom, there's a thought of pizza in my head. Like the platonic idea of pizza is just sitting there. Like it's just a pizza sitting there on a plate. Nothing's happening. It's just the image of pizza. 
No, there's a story that, that I begin building up when I think about this pizza. A narrative begins happening. I can imagine myself getting into my car, driving down to the restaurant. I don't even need Google Maps. I know where it is. I can imagine myself parking and walking through the door and mm, the smell of the restaurant. I know what it smells like. There's a bakery there and there's pasta that people are serving with sauces and I get to sit down and you know, and I get to see people get their food before me and I become envious. Like, I wish that was my pizza. That's that guy's pizza. And finally the pizza is brought before me and I can see the cheese and the first pull and all that. You can see the kind of, of picture that we paint with all of all of this craving and clinging. It's not just craving and clinging alone. There's intention involved, intention that builds up along with the craving and clinging. And that becomes a story that we identify with. It becomes something that we build up in our head. And it becomes seeds that we plant. Whether or not we actually physically act on it. Even just describing the pizza this way. I'm not only planting seeds in my own mind, I'm also planting seeds in some of yours. Perhaps now you're craving pizza. And so those seeds proliferate, get spread around. And some of those seeds will grow up in some other way. Because even if I don't get that particular pizza, it's done something to my mind. It's done something to my future. In fact, when we talk about becoming this thing that we're yoked to, as the Buddha is describing, some people prefer to translate this term, in, in Pali it's bhava. Some people translate this as future lives. And the reason why I think we shouldn't translate it that way is because it seems too far flung to think of it in terms of future lives. It's too far in the distance when what we know about kamma, what we know about karma, is that it can happen also right now, not just in the future. That as we exist right now, we are the result of past karma, but we're also creating new karma right now. And some of it activates right now. It, it becomes something, we, we, we see the results of it right now, and others we see in the future. So it's this ongoing process from this moment into the future, which is why we can translate bhava as becoming, because it's this process that we get caught in. And the root of that process is found in craving and clinging. That was the whole reason that the Buddha talks about craving and clinging in terms of hunger, in terms of thirst, in terms of a search for happiness, but also in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Everything that we learn about Buddhism always winds its way back into the Four Noble Truths. That's the foundation on which the whole path is built on. In fact, the fourth noble truth is just the list of the eight path factors. But all of it comes back down to this, this thing that we're trying to do, which is unraveling the very roots of craving and clinging and the stories we build on. It's bad enough that there's craving and clinging, but we end up, we end up forming an identity around it. We end up forming a world around it. In fact, we often don't see all these different worlds that we've got going on all the time. We think that we live in this one world that we all share, but then beyond that, there's all these private worlds that we have inside, these narratives and stories that we tell ourselves, and these things that pull us away in different ways as well. To bring it back to that example of the restaurant, if my wife and I went to sit down at that restaurant, she might be having a conversation to me with me about something and describing to me something that she's really passionate about, some painting that she saw, or some game that she was playing, or some activity that she enjoys. And she'd be in her own world, describing it to me in vast detail. But I could be in my own pizza world, looking at the door to see when the pizza's coming out of the kitchen. And so wrapped up in that world, in that story, that her voice might just start 
fading into the background. I'm not even paying attention to anything else going on in the restaurant. I just see someone come through and, is that one mine? Oh, no. Uh, how about that one? Oh, yeah, that one is. And I get all excited, right? That's its own world. That's, that's the, the way we identify with our craving and clinging. It becomes an intention. It becomes a motivation. It leads into volition or fabrication, the way we construct our lives in the present and the future. And all of that is wrapped up in this, this idea of becoming. This idea of existence or the, the seeds that we plant for future experience or future lives. A lot of ways we can translate it. But it really does come down to our direct experience. The worlds that we've got in the mind. And these worlds at their center have some kind of desire. Have some type of thing that we think that if we do it will make us happy. And that, when we explore it, we see at the root, there it is. Craving and clinging is what's building these worlds. And so, my cat also is an expert in craving and clinging, wanting pets. And so we, we can look at it in, 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 this term, in these terms, looking at sensuality and seeing how craving and clinging exist in this physical world. But even deeper, there are all kinds of becoming and non-becoming things that we don't like, things that we resist. And we see how greed and aversion or craving and uh, anger, all of these emotions that we have are creating worlds despite our, our best efforts, despite what we think might actually be helpful, but also in reference to everything that we see, it's all right there. It's all in our mind, these things that we keep proliferating, these, keep, these things that we keep exuding and, and they just spread and bubble up. So that gets us to the next one, which is the yoke of views. Now, views is interesting because when we talk about this as a path factor, we talk about it as right view. But we also talk about it as right understanding. But when we look at the Pali word uh, diti, when we, when we actually translate it, we see that it's, it's not just view or understanding, although that's there, but we also see like the like dogma, like beliefs that we have, but we also see theories. I think that's a, a, a great way of translating this, that we often have theories in our mind, those that we've come up with ourselves and those that have been given to us by other people, theories on what we think will make us happy, theories on what we think will bring us joy, theories on what we think will bring us peace, and theories on what liberate us. We have a lot of different theories and beliefs and understandings about how the world works. And each of them have mixed results. Results that when we apply them, sometimes they actually help. Sometimes they don't help at all. Sometimes they help at one time and then later on down the line they don't help even one bit or partially kind of half-baked ideas. And uh, we even have these kind of theories in, uh, in psychology, when we talk about uh, adaptive and maladaptive, these, these traits, these behaviors, these actions that we do, these thoughts that we have, the narratives that we tell ourselves, we can often think of them in terms of when they're adaptive and when they're maladaptive. And it, sometimes it turns out that th the things we thought were adaptive, the things we thought were helping, when we actually investigate them, turn out to not be helping. So when the Buddha was talking about views, he was talking about something that was always helpful. 
he was talking about a kind of theory that when you apply it actually brings around the results the theory says it does. And so when the Buddha talks about having right view, having right understanding, having the right theory, he meant thinking in, about things and understanding things, experiencing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths, which we often learn as a kind of thing to memorize. You know, the Four Noble Truths are that there's suffering, and that suffering arises, and suffering ceases, and that there's a path to that cessation. But more importantly, when we read the account of the Buddha's own awakening, we see that there's not just this understanding or memorization, but this duty that's associated to each one. That we understand that we're supposed to comprehend suffering, comprehend stress. That we understand that we're supposed to abandon the causes of stress and suffering once we know what they are. And we find out that those causes are craving and clinging. Craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming, the clinging to rites and rituals or habits and, and practices, the, the, the clinging to sensuality, the clinging to self-identity views, and so on. There are all these ways that we are bound up. And so we recognize then the third noble truth that, that we can do something that makes these cease. Once we abandon the causes, we find that there are other things that we can do with that same energy, which takes us to the fourth noble truth, which is actually implementing the path that leads to this cessation, which ends up being this strange thing, because here we're talking about how views can be something we're bound up and tied to, that views can be an attachment, that sensuality can be attachment, that becoming can be attachment, but that at the same time, a lot of the ways we follow the path are turning those things into path factors. We turn the things that have been binding us, things that have been uh, clinging to us as much as we've been clinging to them, we take those things and turn them into the path. Which means that when we talk about becoming, and I gave you this great example of, of uh, the pizza that I might enjoy maybe later this week, who knows? Uh, when we talk about it that way, we see the, the negative of it. But what we don't recognize, at least what I don't see spelled out quite as often, is that when we sit down to meditate, and when we cultivate the mind, when we perform this, this activity of uh, bhavana, when we're cultivating or developing the mind, that in itself is becoming as well. We're building a world. We're building a world that has at its heart a kind of desire, which seems counterintuitive because we have the desire to be liberated. We have the desire to be free from greed and hatred and ignorance. And so that becomes this thing that people become confused by. How can we have a, a path that leads to the, to the end of desire, that leads to disenchantment and dispassion, when the very activities we do are built up on a lot of the same things? To put it another way that makes more sense, perhaps if I didn't make sense before, is that every activity we do is with the same body and mind. The same body and mind that's been caught up in all of this unskillfulness that we've all been participating in, all the, the kind of half-baked, maladaptive things that we've been doing, have been with the same body and mind. And yet it's the same body and mind that we put to the practice, that we use in the practice, that we build skillfulness on. And so we can see how it becomes this 
this strange thing as we study right view, as we see we turn away from the unskillful views that we had to the right view in terms of the Four Noble Truths and realize that it's the same mind that got us in, the, in trouble to begin with, and it's the same mind that's going to liberate us. Which is why, when we talk about the, the last yoke here, we come upon ignorance. Ignorance ends up becoming a big deal. If you ever study the, uh, the, the 12 causal links of dependent co-arising or dependent origination, it starts with, with ignorance. And the way it's often taught, you know, the solution to, to ignorance is having some kind of, of wisdom that, that arises in you. And it ends up sounding very mysterious, this wisdom. Like, how does it come about? How do we find this wisdom? Where does it exist in us? And that's why it can be helpful to, instead of talk about wisdom, to talk about uh, discernment. Because that's a quality that we, we all have to lesser and greater degrees already. The ability to look at the evidence, to look at what we see, and see whether or not it's skillful or unskillful, whether it's helpful or not, whether it's adaptive or maladaptive, to continue borrowing that language. And so ignorance is something that exists, again, in reference to the Four Noble Truths, but not because we don't know the Four Noble Truths, but because we haven't yet come to the point where we're experiencing our lives in reference to the Four Noble Truths, really investigating and really looking at and really seeing and doing the kind of things that end up showing us the disenchantment and dispassion that's there when we see things as they really are, as they've really come to be. And so that comes to the solution that the Buddha provides for all of these yokes, for all of these uh, burdens, for all these attachments we've been talking about. And he talks about it in the case for all of them. He says, there is the case where a certain person doesn't discern as it has come to be the origination the passing away, the allure, the drawbacks, and the escape from sensuality. So this is in terms of sensuality. This is how we get caught up. What we find is that when we do it the right way, when we do it the skillful way, in terms of right practice on the path, we discern as it has come to be the origination, the passing away, the allure, the drawbacks, and the escape. And that's true for all of this. This is true for sensuality, for becoming, for views, for, uh, for ignorance. And in just talking about these four yokes in terms of these four things that we're attached to, that we attach ourselves to, these four burdens, we find a, a beautiful summary of the system of causality, those four, those, uh, rather those 12 links of causation. Rather than having to memorize this pattern with all its feedback loops and all the way it connects, beginning with ignorance and name and form and all this stuff, we, we have the ability to just look at these four things and see the way that we're attached to them, to see the way that we've, we've got caught, caught up in them with craving and clinging. And what we find is the very prescription that we use when we meditate, but also when we're li just living our lives, practicing the right way, we can look at the kind of thoughts that are in our minds. We can see the kind of worlds that we're building see the way that we're building up a story with ourselves as the protagonist and the kind of activities that we do in search for happiness. And this applies to not only the things that we think we like, but also the things that 
we think we don't like, and it turns out that there's something kind of we like about that too. You know, I was talking about world building in terms of becoming, and you can think about this not just in the example I gave of the pizza, but like think about, uh, for example, a, an argument you might have been in. You disagreed with someone, and how is it that after the argument is long past, you're the one that's in the shower, like, well, I should have said this, and you have a fake argument with the person all over again, and you have all the zingers that you, you didn't get a chance to have that one time. And we're still building up a story around it. We're still planting seeds in our field for something that happened in the past, but we're still bringing it into the present and planting further seeds that are going to sprout possibly in the present or the future. And it's this thing that we're caught up in all the time. And these things that we get caught up in, we, we should, through meditation and through cultivation and through practicing the path, really look at them with discernment to see how it has come to be, to see how it's originated, to see it's passing away, and to understand why it passes away, and how it passes away, and how we can do that on purpose. And we can do that on purpose partially by looking at the allure, looking at why we, we like this thing, why we crave and cling to it. And even if we don't actually like it, or at least we think we don't, why we're caught up in it anyway. There must be some allure there. Deep down inside, there must be something there that we're still, hmm, there's like a worry stone. There's something we keep rubbing at, and why? And then we can think of it in terms of the drawbacks. What happens as a result of actually continuing this kind of thinking and continuing this kind of action? And what we'll often find is that it doesn't really lead to our long-term welfare and happiness. Quite the opposite that it ends up having somewhere in it some kind of stress, some kind of dissatisfaction, some type of suffering. And so that leads to the escape from whatever it is, that, whatever it is that's troubling us, ailing us. All right, so there's the, the, the four yokes, not to be confused with eggs, and also not to be confused with yoga. And so to, to bring this back to what I was saying in terms of, of the new year and, and resolutions, when talking about these things that we're bound up in, all of them have at their, at their basis craving and clinging, but also resolve, also thought, the story that we build, the becoming that we create through our intentions, through our fabrications, through our volitions. So even though it's quite uh, cliche to talk about the new year and our resolutions, from a Buddhist standpoint, it's actually pretty helpful to think about what we want the future to be. Because one of the beautiful things we learn from Buddhism is that we do shape our present and we do shape our future. And that happens through resolve, happens through resolution. Go figure. A long time ago, I probably would have laughed at the whole idea, but it's true. That's, that's the power of the path, that it is shaped by our minds. It's shaped by our practice, and it becomes a very real, impactful thing when we recognize how much power we have to shape our existence. So I will end the talk there. Thank you.